0: Good evening. My name is Valerie Smith, and um, I'm the director of the Center for African American Studies and a professor in the English department here at Princeton. On behalf of the Center and the Princeton University Press, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to welcome you all to the second of the inaugural Toni Morrison Lectures and to introduce Shirley Tillman, the president of Princeton, who will in turn introduce our distinguished and beloved speaker, Cornel West. I want to begin by thanking Toni Morrison for allowing us to honor her magnificent talent and her incomparable contributions to public life through this series. We love you, Toni, and we're grateful that you've walked with us and among us, inspiring us with your courageous witness, your embrace of nuance, your intellectual rigor, and your love of beauty. In his eloquent introductory remarks last evening, my friend and colleague, Professor Eddie Glaude, predicted that the Toni Morrison lectures would go down in history as the preeminent lectures on race offered anywhere in the world. And if anyone had any doubts about that claim, they were certainly laid to rest by Cornell West's powerful opening lecture, which challenged us to consider from an historical perspective the gifts of black folk in an age of terrorism. Professor West argued brilliantly that if we acknowledge that for black folk, the age of terrorism began when the first African stepped off the slave ship and onto the soil of the New World, then we can begin to understand the power of the gifts of Socratic questioning, the ability to live on intimate terms with the fact of death the capacity for prophetic witness, and the artistic gift for the tragic comic, also known as the blues, in the shaping of the American experiment in democracy. The Morrison lectures are historic because they will enable the most original thinkers, the most eloquent speakers, and the most influential figures in the academy and in public life to come to Princeton and reflect in a sustained way about the meaning and the significance of race. These lectures are also historic because they will provide a forum that is once dynamic and permanent through which we will honor Professor Morrison's legacy. For not only will we convene each year for the lectures themselves and for the passionate conversations they will engender, but each series will be published as a separate volume by Princeton University Press. So imagine, if you will, year after year, adding one volume after another to the shelf you reserve in your bookcase for the Morrison Lectures. As they fill one shelf and then the next and then the next, these books will be a constant reminder and a lasting tribute to Toni Morrison and to what she once called the real life of the book world. And I quote, creating and producing and distributing knowledge, making it possible for the entitled as well as the dispossessed to experience one mind dancing with another. Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce Shirley M. Tillman, president of Princeton University this evening. Shirley Tillman was elected Princeton's 19th president on May 5, 2001, and she assumed office on June 15th of that year. An exceptional teacher and a world-renowned scholar and leader in the field of molecular biology, she served on the Princeton faculty for 15 years before being named president. A native of Canada, President Tillman received her honors B.S.C. in chemistry from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. After two years of secondary school teaching in Sierra Leone, West Africa, she went on to pursue the Ph.D. in biochemistry from Temple University. During her postdoctoral studies at the National Institutes of Health, she made a number of groundbreaking discoveries while participating in cloning the first mammalian gene, and then continued to make scientific breakthroughs as an independent investigator at the Institute for Cancer Research in Philadelphia and as an adjunct associate professor of human genetics and biochemistry and biophysics at the University of Pennsylvania. Shirley Tillman came to Princeton in 1986 as the Howard A. Pryor Professor of the Life Sciences. Two years later, she joined the Howard Hughes Medical Institute as an investigator, and in 1998, she was appointed the founding director of Princeton's multidisciplinary Lewis Sigler Institute for Integrative Genomics. A member of the National Research Council's committee that set the blueprint for the U.S. effort in the Human Genome Project, Shirley Tillman was also one of the founding members of the National Advisory Council of the Human Genome Project Initiative for the National Institutes of Health. She's renowned not only for her pioneering research, but for her national leadership on behalf of women in science and for promoting efforts to make the early careers of young scientists as meaningful and productive as possible. From 1993 through 2000, President Tillman chaired Princeton's Council on Science and Technology, which encourages the teaching of science and technology to students outside of the sciences. And in 96, she received Princeton's President's Award for Distinguished Teaching. During my term as director of of first the program and now the Center for African American Studies, I've come to appreciate firsthand President Tillman's courage, imagination, toughness, warmth, wit, and her profound commitment to this university. She and the stellar team of top administrators with whom she works, especially but not exclusively Provost Chris Eisgruber and Dean of the Faculty David Dobkin, have shown extraordinary leadership in ensuring that this great institution is at the forefront of identifying and meeting the challenges that confront higher education, the nation, and the world in the 21st century. I want to take this opportunity to thank you publicly, Shirley, for your enthusiastic and profound commitment to the expansion of African American studies through the creation of the Center. We're all honored that you've agreed to introduce Cornell West this evening. Thank you.
1: When I look at this audience this evening, full on a Saturday night of the Harvard game weekend, which for any of you who don't know it, we won, (laughs) coming to hear one of our nation's great intellectuals, I truly have hope for the future. It's really an honor for me to be here this evening with you to introduce my extraordinary friend and great colleague, Cornell West, as the inaugural Toni Morrison Lecturer. As Eddie Glaude said last evening and Val reiterated it a moment ago, this lecture series was conceived last year by the faculty in our exciting new Center for African American Studies, And it is indeed their intention that this series become the most important occasion each year for scholars and intellectuals to raise their voices on matters related to the African American experience. What better way to inaugurate such an ambitious series than to link the names of two individuals whose voices have shaped that dialogue over the last three decades? Toni Morrison, the Robert F. Goheen Professor in the Humanities Emeritus, has used the power of literature to awaken in and reveal to her readers a deeper understanding of race in American life. From the bluest eye to love, her novels are filled with unforgettable characters whose voices compel us to look at beauty, identity, devotion, race, and other dimensions of human existence with new eyes. They capture and yet transcend the African American experience, and together they have redefined the modern American novel and American literature itself. She has also brought to the teaching of art to a new level at Princeton, giving thoroughly lucky students each year the opportunity to study with working artists from all disciplines in the Princeton Atelier. This evening's lecturer is her dear friend and her equal in his own chosen profession of scholarship. Born in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1953 and raised in Sacramento, California Cornell West has been described as a rare blend of devout Christian, social activist, and provocative philosopher, an eminent scholar with 17 books to his credit, who has spent his professional life straddling the halls of academia and the town halls of America. It is hard to identify an arena in which he has not willingly, and indeed eagerly, embraced the opportunity to take his deep understanding of our history and culture to the people. From his TV, radio, and print collaborations with Tavis Smiley to his star turn in the Matrix trilogy to his hip-hop CDs. In each of those venues, he is truly larger than life. West entered Harvard at the age of 17 and graduated magna cum laude three years later. He earned a PhD in philosophy from Princeton in 1980, producing a dissertation that was later published as The Ethical Dimensions of Marxist Thought. After teaching at Union Theological Seminary, Yale, Haverford, and the University of Paris, West returned to Princeton in 1988 as professor of religion and director of the Afro-American Studies program. In 1993, West published Race Matters, a best-selling collection of essays on the dynamics of race in America that the New York Times called a compelling blend of philosophy, sociology, and political commentary. In this volume, which captured national attention, West called for a new approach to racial issues, one that is neither conservative nor liberal, neither Afrocentric nor Eurocentric, an approach, to use his words, that begins with a frank acknowledgment of the basic humanness and Americanness of each of us. In 1994, much to Princeton's regret, West headed north for a brief sojourn in the wilderness. (laughs) Absent, but not forgotten, West received the James Madison Medal from Princeton University in 1996, our highest honor that we bestow on graduate alumni. It was with great rejoicing in the streets of Princeton that we successfully wooed him back to Princeton in 2002, where he serves as the class of 1943 university professor of religion. He is a ubiquitous presence on our campus and remains in the public eye. Indeed, it is virtually impossible to traverse the Princeton campus last year without encountering either the man himself or his picture on a light post. He is sought after by students and faculty alike for he is truly a gifted teacher with the potential to change the trajectory of his students' lives. The year he returned, I noticed that the faculty and students in religion looked significantly more bleary-eyed than usual. And I learned that the discussions that began at afternoon tea in the department were extending into the wee hours of the next day, often across the street at the Annex, which is the place where you are surely to find Cornell on the average evening. His most recent book, Democracy Matters, is a passionate call to revitalize our nation's democratic spirit, which is threatened, in his view, by a rising tide of capitalism, militarism, and authoritarianism. He remains what he has always been, a compelling and occasionally controversial voice on behalf of a democratic socialism. It is with enormous pleasure that I give you one of Princeton's truly shining stars, Cornel West, for his second Toni Morrison lecture on the gift of black folk. In the age of terrorism,
2: yeah, what a delight and joy to be back once again. I was saying to myself, I'm not sure I would want to return to hear myself again on the second night, so I congratulate those who were here last night. And I'd like to thank my very, very dear colleague and president and sister Shirley Tillman for those very kind and generous remarks. Uh, I've said all over the country and the world that for me, there's two towering figures in the world of higher education in the American empire. It's Ruth Simmons and Shirley Tillman. And that's quite a salute. Let's give our dear president a hand. There's really something about Canada. <laughs> see Professor Peter Parrish just retired from Princeton Theological Seminary from Canada. Brother Fred, a- Fred Apple, who was a distinguished member of the higher echelons of the Princeton University Press from Canada. Shirley Tillman from Canada. Brother Harold Shapiro, former president from Canada. Princeton, we've got a deep debt to pay. <laughs> To our dear Canadian brothers and sisters, and I say that in all, in all honesty. Uh, last night, of course, I came close to tears trying to uh, talk about Toni Morrison, what she means to me. I will not repeat myself. I do echo my distinguished colleague, Professor Valerie Smith, when she says, Toni, we love you madly. And there's no doubt about that We respect you deeply. I have my own private literary canon that begins with Sophocles and goes through Aristophanes and on the Dante and Shakespeare and Cervantes and Dostoevsky and beloved Anton Chekhov. And it takes a while to get to America. We're not known for our deep Profound, courageous, literary artists. We've got Duke Ellington and Sarah Vaughan and Louis Armstrong. But literary artists, and I mentioned three last night. I mentioned Herman Melville and William Faulkner and Tony Morrison. How rare it is to be in the physical presence. Of one of those who will be talked about and written about 100, 200, 300 years from now, we salute the one and only, inimitable Tony Mars. Indeed
1: indeed. indeed,
2: indeed, we've. Uh, friends who come from all around the world I look out and see Felicia Rashad the first winner of the Tony Award, person of African-American descent playing old big mama in that classic by Lorraine Hansberry of 1959 raising in the Sun, she was just here at Princeton, Jim of the Ocean the magnificent role of the late August Wilson. It's been almost exactly a year. He died October second, two thousand and five. And of course, many know her as the uh, the mother of America, the mother of Black America. With brother Bill Cosby, Where is Sister Felicia Rashad just raise your hand. Let's give her a hand, please. <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. So many friends. See, brother Toby Sanders there, my dear brother, struggling in Trenton as a public intellectual. Always a blessing, brother. Professor Paula Mann, with her beloved family, her mother and her children, and brother, it's driven a long way to be here. I salute each and every one of you. And I think of Tony Morrison's work, you know, I think of that wonderful line and that minor classic of the indescribable poet, playwright, William Shakespeare. His play, King John, it's a play that's rarely read. I hope I can encourage some undergrads to steal away to the library tomorrow and take a peek at it. There's a line that in some ways echoes Shakespeare himself. We know Shakespeare, like Plato, never reveals himself. We really never know what voice he actually adopts as his own. Many scholars have reached the conclusion that this line has everything to do with his own vocation. It is sweet, sweet, sweet poison for the age's tooth. Sweet, sweet, sweet poison for the age's truth is spoken by a bastard. Oh, Philip Falconbridge! And there's another line in that poem that says, "commodity." the bias of the world. And he pits the bastard, deracinated, rootless, in quest for home, in quest for identity, over against a corrupt cardinal. Reminds you a little bit of the market spirituality and chamber of commerce, religion, and prosperity gospel so pervasive these days. And the king I think, not just Tony Morrison's work, but I think what I tried to allude to yesterday in talking about the gifts of this particular slice of humanity. People of African descent standing with dignity, taking action with such courage and compassion, with malice toward none but with a righteous indignation against injustice, trying to empower those sly stone-called everyday people. Thoroughly democratic, those three gifts, Socratic questioning on the one hand. Prophetic witness for love and justice on the other. And then the tragic comic hope, that dark laughter that hides and conceals tears, psychic scars, and personal bruises, ontological wounds. I say it is a blessing to be here at Princeton to try to hold up this bloodstained banner as you recall last night I ended on the word maturity I was echoing that of the great F.O. Matheson the towering Harvard professor for me one of the great public intellectuals in the history of the American empire in the 20th century as I mentioned, he committed suicide in 1950 he had already written a classic on American Renaissance and those towering American writers of Whitman and Emerson, Melville. But he said, would America be unique among modern nations to move from perceived innocence to corruption without a mediating stage of maturity? That's where I ended yesterday. That's where I want to begin today, wrestling with this question of ways in which people of African descent in the United States that's forged Forms of maturity, what I call paideia, P-A-I-D-E-I-A, paideia, democratic forms of paideia in the face of American terrorism. What I was alluding to yesterday is uh, niggerization, ways in which black people constructed as niggers taught to be Fearful, taught to be afraid, subject to manipulation, gullible easy to sell out because you feel as if there's no options or alternatives. And then I was suggesting, of course, that this context of social death, American slavery, the violence, the naked force and coercion. The natal alienation, which I didn't get a chance to talk about too much, but what it really means to be born without access to your ascending or descending generations, what it means to be born without connection with your progeny or predecessors, what it means to be born as a geological isolate and as a secular excommunicate, to use the language of Orlando Patterson again. Alienated at birth and then dishonored, taught to hate, one's self. I alluded to it very briefly in the question and answer yesterday, you see, so that that social death that then moves into the civic death of Jim and Jane Crow and so on, the terrorism, connected to psychic death and spiritual death, all as challenges. And then I suggested, of course, that Since 9-11, we all feel unsafe, unprotected, subject to random violence and hated for who we are, that the whole nation has become niggerized in a particular way. When I look at the American people, I see American citizens being constituted the way niggers once were. Intimidated. Fearful subject to manipulation lied to and if you oppose the lie you are called a liar under control and surveillance and if you resist the control and surveillance you become the traitor mechanisms of torture you critique the torture you become unpatriotic and black folks say been here before <laughs> heard this kind of language before and of course i highlighted two grand moments moments that i hope we never forget as a people in this very fragile experiment called democracy given our tilt toward xenophobia excessive tilt toward class privilege Tilt toward white supremacy, male supremacy, anti-Semitism, anti-Arab sensibility. Trying to hold on to the best of what the American tradition is all about. And I said, there's a Mathilde's mother that says, she doesn't have to read George Bernard Shaw's play to know that hatred is a coward's revenge against those who intimidate you. So therefore, when she looks at her baby, she says what? I don't have a minute to hate. I'll pursue justice for the rest of my life. What does Martin King say? Love, justice. Is that pure naivete? Is that just a refusal to come to terms with reality? Or is something deeper going on? And that's why anytime we talk about race in America, We're really talking about both a vicious legacy of white supremacy, but also various forms of resilience and resistance to that. It is a balance of forces, though often an imbalance of forces, often an asymmetric relation of power, but it's not an abstract category. There's concrete human beings who are suffering and shuddering and struggling to the best of their ability, some falling on their face, some even choosing to be gangsters. Some choosing to be scared and cowardly. Some choosing to be lukewarm. Some submitting to complacency and conformity and cowardice, yes. But Emmett Till's mother, Martin King, Tony Morrison, Du Bois, and others, they are that slice of black community, black tradition that stand tall, that straighten their backs up and say, we are going to build on this democratic form of paideia that is rooted in chocolate slices in America, that's grounded in the legacy of those who resisted the social death of slavery like Frederick Douglass and the civic death of Jim and Jane Crow like Ida B. Wells Barnett. And the fundamental question becomes, especially after 9-11, now that the nation has the blues, can we learn something from a blues people? And maybe if we don't, we'll end up losing this precious experiment in America called democracy. Just like in 1861 and 1862, thank God, there was a white brother with a one-year formal education pedigree named Abraham Lincoln that was willing to sit down with a Frederick Douglass and sit down with a Harriet Tubman and say, maybe I can learn something about your experience because we have to mobilize all of the intellectual, political, spiritual, existential resources to try to sustain this fragile experiment in democracy because the white supremacist forces down south have organized in such a way that the union is in deep trouble. Another way of raising the question is to say that that now that we all have been terrorized, can we learn something from black veterans of American terrorism? Now that we all have been shaken from the light, that hotel civilization I alluded to last night, Henry James talked about escaping from the darkness. Maybe we can learn something now from a people who've had to grope in darkness. It reminds me actually, Tony, of the prologue of uh, Richard Wright's great text, Black Boy, Job 5.14. We meet in darkness at daytime. We grope in noonday. As in the night, A people who can never experience the lights on in the hotel civilization can never experience the sun out with that grand city on the hill. But in the darkness cast, those lethal shadows, those specters, connected to killing fields and mean streets somehow these people, these black people, continue to dish out gifts like Socratic questioning, like prophetic witness, like tragic comic hope and laughter and blues and jazz and rhythm and blues and the best of hip-hop. What a challenge. What a grand challenge. The question is whether America is ready for it. And maturity Is always about mustering the courage to look forms of death in the face and not to hold it at arm's length and escape from it, but work through it. That's precisely why life affirmation is rooted in facing forms of death. So I want to say something about this democratic paideia that produces this level of maturity enacted by Emmett Till's mother, enacted by Martin King, and we can go on and on and on. I see Professor Hansen out there. He knows what I'm talking about. He's been teaching this for 40-some years at the seminary, and he's got a West Indian take on it, which adds some richness. That's Malcolm, and that's Marcus Garvey, and that's whole rich traditions becomes connected with with those of us who are now post Negroes. Our parents were called Negroes. And that's very important because that's not true for Barack Obama, is it? He's not a post Negro. He's a beautiful black man who comes out of a wonderful family that's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you got a white sister. He got a Kenyan father, so neither one. I'm Negro. Well, we can give a lecture on that right there, Okay. not we? I'm not putting my brother down. I love him much. I'm just I mentioned before. I'm just looking for more courage on his behalf. But the point is this: the point is this that Paideia begins. With what Simone Weil calls a formation of attention. A formation of attention. Ortega Gasset used to say, tell me to what you attend to, and I'll tell you what kind of person you are. Of course, this is where Princeton comes in. This is where the great center, Stanhope, comes in. Princeton is fundamentally committed to democratic paideia. We're trying to convince young folk. The shift from the superficial to the substantial. The shift from the frivolous to the serious. You can't just skate on the surfaces all your life and not come to terms with reality and history and memory and mortality. You've got to grow up. It is a perennial process. It's an endless process. But sooner or later, life is going to knock you against the wall and push you to your knees. And Prospect Avenue may not come to your rescue. Being facetious, but you get the point. You see. And when you look at the gifts of black folk and the issues of life and death and joy and sorrow and heartache and heartbreak, always already confronting you. When your child four years old asks you, why am I hated so? That is a serious question. You have to be able to respond in such a way that the bitterness of their soul does not lead them to be devoured. But at the same time, they've got to be able to gain access to resources to still walk through this chamber of horrors. That's the beginning of Paideia. Something is at stake Thank God for Socrates, as Erasmus used to say. St. Socrates, pray for us. And he was a Christian, Erasmus was. That's my kind of Christian. St. Socrates, pray for us. Paideia, crucial. Center in Stanhope. Serious formation of attention. Doing what? Raising the issues of How do we engage in critical reflection, questioning, interrogation, mustering the courage to think so critically for ourselves that we're willing to think against the grain outside of the box, to be nonconformist, to fundamentally believe... That there's something about intellectual integrity as an intrinsic value and therefore an openness to a variety of different perspectives because we acknowledge the abundance of the inexhaustible variety of the way in which people view the world and therefore we must listen to one another. The very art of dialogue It's so very important and of course we're losing the very art of dialogue in contemporary culture but we won't have time to go into that. We can talk about it in question and answer. Thank God for Eddie Glaude stood around. He's such a master of it. My God, Princeton is so blessed to have him. And to see his blessed wife sitting right next to him. Socratic to the core as a young brother. And I say as a young brother because I do think the art of dialogue is being lost among the younger generation. In the same way that the gifts of black folk more and more waning. I mentioned last night about Ayn to dying in King Hedley too. That's 1980. He said Reaganism has reached the point where the level of decay in the black community is such that the connection through memory and history is lost and you live only in the present an eternal now reproducing itself over and over again so that paideia is pushed to the margins. And what does one attend to? What do people attend to these days? Success. Prosperity. Security. There may be a little curiosity. But no, this black version of democratic paideas says, don't be duped by success. Go back and read that white literary blues man, Tennessee Williams' essay, The Catastrophe of success after the Glass Menagerie hit Broadway in 1945. What do you have in mind, Tennessee? I'm not against young people being successful, but if that's all they're about, they'll never be able to engage in serious paideia, especially from the context of the gift of black folk. Success is only a means to greatness. Where is the discourse about greatness? You can't talk about the gifts of black folk unless you talk about greatness. Greatness in the form of what kind of human being you are. Greatness in the form of what is the quality of your service to others. Greatness in the form of what is the depth of your generosity and how deep is your love for others. And I mentioned before, when I mentioned talking about love, I'm not talking about Hollywood. I'm not talking about television. I'm talking about love the way James Baldwin talked about it. The most daring, difficult, and dangerous force in the world. But the most transformative force. The kind of love that makes you take off the mask because you, in fact, fear that you can't live without it, but you know you can't stay within it. Unsettling. I always hope and pray that Princeton students leave the classroom at least two or three times in the four years that they're here and recognize that their worldview rests on pudding. It's completely discombobulated, disoriented. In fact, I ran into my dear brother the other day. Professor West, I'm thoroughly perplexed. I say, that's good, that's beautiful. That's <laughs> beautiful. Reminds me of Alexis Socrates. I go around infecting others with the perplexity I've been infected by. And don't confuse perplexity with curiosity. I have great respect for scientists like my dear president, distinguished biologists. Curiosity, yes. But perplexity is like the five howls of Lear at the end of Shakespeare's classic when through his madness he learns some sense of humility when the very root of who he is has been shattered. That's perplexity. That's a little bit different Been going after the data, trying to render it co- consistent and coherent. That's what formation of attention is about. And that's why... We are successful here at Princeton, here at the center, to the degree to which we can convince young people that you're not here solely for your career. You're here to find a calling to wrestle with. You're not here solely for a profession. You're here to find a vocation to grapple with. Well, you learn much from the gifts of black folk because you can't talk about the figures I have invoked without talking about a deep and profound sense of calling and vocation. Something that you are so self invested in and self immersed in that you cannot conceive of yourself not doing it. The way in which John Coltrane blew his horn 18 hours, went to sleep with the horn in his mouth and woke up blowing. Now that's a bit excessive, but you get my point. Way Joyce wrote to preserve his sanity. It's a calling. It's a bit excessive too, but you understand the point I'm making. You see, that formation of attention goes hand in hand with the cultivation of a self that has to do with confronting the night side of reality, you see? the night side of history, the night side of mortality, as I mentioned before. Democratic paideia to the degree to which we lose connection with the tradition that puts democratic paideia at the center is a degree to which our democracy continues to slide down a slippery slope with its materialism and hedonism and narcissism rapacious individualism to the kind of authoritarian road that it looks like more and more each day we seem to be headed. That's just how integral and constitutive the gifts of black folk can be. That's why race is never just marginal and additive. It sits at the center. And yet even with those gifts, gifts we still may fail. Still may fail. There's no Guarantee what so ever. The cultivation of the self is the maturation of a soul. And you look very closely at the various texts, towering texts, go back to David Walker's appeal I had mentioned last night. And oh that first time that a black person stepped into Congress in february twelfth, eighteen sixty five Reverend Henry Highland Garnett, the pastor of 5th, 15th Street Presbyterian Church, and stood before the Congress, first time a black person ever spoke in Congress. And what was the subject matter? Let the monster perish. Speaking to the 13th and 14th amendments. Monster perish, what are you talking about? It's an acknowledgement. That the democratic paideia I'm talking about is always against the backdrop of the catastrophic, the monstrous, the scandalous, the traumatic. That's precisely why one's whole mind, heart, and soul is invested in the education, the paideia process. But that's also precisely why it's never just about information. It's also about transformation. It's not just about perspiring, but it's also about being inspired. It's impossible to actually tease out any of the figures that I've noted before. You can't even begin to pick up a text by Toni Morrison, be it about the Breedlove family in the Bluest Eye* read about Pilate and Song of Solomon without being both unsettled but also inspired how did these people preserve their, ins- their sanity and humanity what role did family, religion, faith community, gemeinschaft and play how does that relate to me given the fact that I feel as if sometimes I am going mad, going insane that's true for each and every one of us, not just a matter of black folk Not at all. This issue of democratic paideia that ushers forth out of the black struggle for freedom is an intellectual challenge. It's a beautiful thing that Professor Melissa Harris-Lacewell mentioned this point to me, and she's absolutely right when she read what President Tillman had to say. It's a nice thing to have a president who gives the intellectual defense of oh, the study of black doings and suffering, so people can see that it's not PR, it is essential to the mission of the institution. That's hard to find. You can give the sister a hand, give her another hand. That's hard to find. <clears throat> Very hard to find. I remember the first time I was asked to go to Harvard, I turned Harvard down twice before I went. First time I was asked to go to Harvard, I sat up with the president. I said, what is your intellectual defense of Afro-American studies? Oh, I hadn't thought about it. It'd be wonderful to have you, though. No, that's not a place for me. It's <laughs> not a place for me. Life's too short. It's not integral to what the institution's all about at the deepest level. The quest for truth, small t. The quest for knowledge, small k. And the formation of critical citizens. There's some notion of common good and public interest then we don't have a broad enough vision. Something is going on here that needs correction. I don't say that to put Harvard down and acknowledge he lost the game today and so forth. I'm just speaking. I'm just telling the truth. Just telling the truth. But this democratic paideia, it's not just essential, but it constitutes The democratic leaven in the American loaf. And that loaf can't grow. It's going to get stale as we see daily. And what happens as the citizens read more and more niggerized, manipulated, intimidated. Hit one against the other, divided over and over and over again, feeling what? More helpless, more impotent, more distrustful of one another. We say, how was it that these particular black people resisted niggerization? See, Muhammad Ali was not a nigger. He resisted niggerization because of his investment in a democratic paidea. Martin King wasn't either... Fannie Lou Hamer wasn't either. You might beat her down so that she loses her eye. You might try to push her into the water and drown her, but she emerges just like Emmett Till's mother, committed to democratic paideia and refuses to be niggerized in the sense of being so intimidated that she cannot resist with dignity the powers that be. And the American population, as it now undergoes, Various forms of manipulation and division and bastardization also have to raise up and say, like Fannie Lou Hamer, we learned something from these particular victims and agents against terrorism, though one was American style, and now we have gangsters from abroad. And, of course, I believe, of course, gangsterism is always... um phenotypically promiscuous which is simply saying they come in all colors. They come in all colors. In fact, I recall marching against Saddam Hussein here as a, as a graduate student because we were calling him a gangster then. Then he was America's gangster so we were not popular of course. Uh, but. If you're going to be against gangsters, you have to be against gangsters consistently in the name of intellectual integrity and in the name of a prophetic witness tied to love and justice and in the name of a tragic comic hope. Cross the board. That's true for the left, true for the center, true for the right. And the best of those particular black folk, though of course they're finite and human like anybody else and sometimes fall on their faces hold up that kind of high standard. Well what does this particular form of democratic paideia say to us today? And it's here where we have to be very honest and candid. I think it's it's an open question. One of the reasons why I spend so much time with the younger generation is because I I often feel as if this great tradition is being lost, no, mo- no longer transmitted in the way in which it all no longer bequeathed in the way in which it should be. And it's not just Princeton, but it's in prisons. It's, it's in community centers. It's in mosques and temples and synagogues and churches and trade unions, feminist centers dealing with domestic violence of cowardly men who attack their wives and women at home very very concrete issues but trying to bring to bear some kind of democratic paideia that says to young people please as you pursue your prosperity don't forget magnanimity greatness of character as you pursue your security don't forget your integrity like Du Bois and Baldwin and Morrison one of the things that I love about those towering figures Du Bois, Baldwin and Morrison is that they they're unbossed unbought unafraid unintimidated bold and fearless that's a rare thing in the world all of us can learn not by imitation, Emerson is right imitation is suicide but by inspiration to view their example as a springboard and a launching pad but that kind of freedom of mind heart and soul in the face of the social death and the civic death and the psychic death as well as that Spiritual death of just outright full-scale nihilism, meaninglessness, lovelessness, hopelessness, which is also more and more pervasive these days, and not just in chocolate cities, in vanilla suburbs too. Tied to addictive personalities and dispositions, all to pacify a populace as they are rendered more and more. Powerless vis a vis the powers that be. It's a fundamental commitment to the sanctity and dignity of those late great James Cleveland called ordinary people. Democratic paideia is about how they can convince themselves to democratically take back power in the face of elite. Abuse of power, and yes, that third gift oftentimes is a last resort. That's where our artists play an important role, and I think it's no accident that when you look for truth-telling these days, one more than likely has to go to the artist, whatever form it takes. Whatever form it takes, it could be M- M1 a dead press. So they got this little brother now, Lupe Fiasco. Sounds good to me. Telling the truth. You can go to Tony Marsh, you can go to Thomas Pynchon, you can go to Tony Kushner. We just left, lost a giant, Arthur Miller. Stephen Sondheim's another great truth teller. Go to the artists. The professors, brilliant, smart, sophisticated, refined. How much courage? Always a question mark. <laughs> Thank God they're doing what they do with the young folk, yes. Yes, but as I started this lecture, you can't talk about the gifts of black folk unless you're willing to talk about things that you are willing to live and die for. And I'm not saying martyrdom is normative, but somebody's got to do it. It's the very blood of such folk that fertilize the possibility for democratic change and transformation of the next generation. That's why you can't talk about gifts of black folk without talking about Medgar and Martin and Malcolm and Fannie and Stokely and others. Those are just not abstract names. Those are persons who put their bodies in the process of democratic paideia and sometimes their bodies didn't come back and their families had to shed tears. Yet we never, ever, ever forget them. And of course, black folk have no monopoly on this. This is true for cultures, colors across the board. But that's what we're talking about. That's what paideia is about. That's what Socratic questioning is about. That's why Socrates drank the hemlock. That's what prophetic witness is about. That's why Jesus ended up on the cross. That's what tragic comic hope and dark laughter is about. If we reach the point where the only way we can take back power is to raise our voices in such a way and stylize time by means of our bodies by walking and talking in such a way that's what we have to do that's why we'll sing and cry and walk and dance no other control that was true during slavery ah jim crow we got a little more space Break the back of Jim Crow, 1964, five. My God, it's not too long ago. Not too long ago at all. We mentioned yesterday, Princeton on the cutting edge of breaking the back of American apartheid. No, not on the cutting edge, but we had some Princeton students who were involved. (laughs) They were involved with Brother Ralph Nader, the class of 55, and Edward Zayed, the class of... 57? I mean, they may not be the most popular graduates of Princeton, but they're ours. Just like Donald Rumfeld is ours. I mean, we got a big family. We've got a complicated, heterogeneous, diverse group of folk out there. They're still Princetonians. I don't push Rumfeld out of the family just because he's wrong. I just had to fight him, that's all. I just have to oppose him democratically. I hope he's opposing me democratically rather than authoritarianly. but that's another issue. (laughs) But I end on this blue note. It's a note not just of laughter, but of dignity and defiance and dissonance in the minor key again. the blue note has everything to do with holding out for the possibility of democratic paideia once again becoming a powerful force. Learning how to live, learning how to die, learning how to die by criticizing one's own assumptions and presuppositions in such a way that you let some of them go, that you give some of them up. And each time you do that... It's a small death. And it's the only way maturation, it's the only way maturity comes about. And that's one of the crucial ways in which the democratic are honed out over time by black people in the age of terrorism that did begin when the first dignified African stepped off that slave ship into this Whirlwind of white supremacy. One could call it the absurd, but I follow Samuel Beckett. He says, no, the absurd is even too abstract. Just call it a mess. (laughs) I love Beckett. How do we live and generate art that allows us to come to terms with the mess? Of course, I call it defunct. That's really what it is. It's quite telling that Shakespeare ends King John, this minor play, but I think full of so much deep meaning. He reverses the tradition of Elizabethan playwriting, where usually the person with the highest rank has the last word. But in this play, it's the old bastard, Philip, who has the last word. Which for Shakespeare means there's a sense in which he is the real king. But he's the king of magnanimity. He's the king of integrity. He's the king of greatness. Even though the king of success and prosperity and power still reigns. Let us hope that some of the wise words and lives this great and grand tradition of struggle for black freedom has at least a last word as we proceed thank you all so very much appreciate it Okay, thank you very much. Oh, indeed, indeed. appreciate it. i very, very patient. I appreciate that. we got good time for questions, queries, commentary. Do not hesitate. It's so kind of you all to come back on a Saturday night like this. So. I think we do have microphones right I think it's Brother with the Princeton shirt on, right in the middle there. Good to see you. But you just stand up and make sure everyone can hear you, don't you, Brother? Inspiration of hope. Yeah, I appreciate the question. One is that, you see, I have a... Uh, fundamental dedication to the three dimensions of time, the past, present, and the future. And so I begin with the past. I begin with piety. Uh, by piety, we mean paying debts to those who came before and the sources of your movement from womb to tomb as a force of goodness in your life. So I begin with my mama, basically. I mean, that's really what I want to say. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it begins with mom and dad, you know. Uh, well, last night when I, was, I began invoking uh, Toni Morrison's Blessed Parents, because it begins with persons who uh, provide a certain kind of unconditional love for you—a love that you know, in the sense, you really don't deserve. It's a sheer act of grace. It's almost—it's almost a kind of. Uh, I mean, W. H. Auden has this wonderful definition of agape as the, that arrow's mutated by grace. So it's not just an addition; it's a conver, It's a conversion that allows you to have wind at your back. So I could not downplay uh, the role of uh, of mom and dad or uh, or. My brother Clifton and two sisters, and even my kids, would be true for Clifton. My son, as well as my beloved daughter, uh, Zaytun. So that it's very much family, and then from there goes the friends. Like Brother Eddie, Tavis Smiley, Mars, and on and on. You know, inner close, close circle of friends. And then from there it goes to my conversation with the dead. And I, I tend to be in continual conversation with Chekhov. He speaks to me regularly. Absolutely. There's a short story you, you'd probably want to read called Rothschild's Fiddle. You read that tonight or tomorrow, brother. It's a hell of a text, and it illuminates some of what I'm talking about today, the relation between music and death. It's a blues story, even though Chekhov's Russian, you know. It's blues to the core. And, of course, you're in my class, so we have wonderful dialogue about some of that other stuff we, we, we get into. here. So it's good to see. No, indeed. Where was it? I didn't. Thank you. Uh, Professor West, my name is Bruce McBarnick, class of 80. And a question that I had for you uh, today, I was certainly very impressed with your presentation, as always, is uh, the democratic uh, paideia of which you speak. Yes. Uh, what uh, group or institu- type of institution or segment of society, besides universities, do you see as uh, taking the leadership in providing the resurgence of this uh, democratic paideia? Yeah, it's a good question, but I didn't want to uh Make any predictions, though. I mean, your question has to do with what is in place at the moment. I think you find it in a variety of different forms in very different contexts. You do see it at the university. You've got this wonderful conversation going on. You've got intellectual ferment going on. And you've got a slice of courageous engagement that spills over in such a way that persons outside not only have to take notice but have to try to internalize and become part of some kind of motion or movement. Uh, you've got in prophetic churches uh, when I talked about some of the more Constantinian churches you know, I was just a little critical in terms of the market spirituality and so forth but uh, prophetic churches haven't completely disappeared they're just not highly visible but they're there and they can emerge prophetic synagogues the same way prophetic mosques would be the same way the problem is is that they've yet to be able to come together in such a way that they coalesce and actually create a kind of space where together they can begin to talk about changing the larger society. Now, my hunch is, is that, uh, just look at I mean, American history, of course, has various cycles. We've got Professor Daniel Rogers, who's written some of the most uh, insightful and wise stuff on, the, on American history, though. But I do think that uh, the dialectical interplay between social movements on the outside and courageous politicians on the inside makes a difference. So there's a kind of radical fire under reform. And when that radical fire tends to dampen, then those potential reformers end up well-adjusted to a system that is often characterized by, not, lethargy. Or to use the language of Russell Feingold, who's a politician, actually, I have great respect for. What did he say on the Florida Senate, Dr. Claudia? He said, uh, we are in a system characterized by legalized bribery and normalized corruption. I said, wow. (laughs) He's on the inside saying that, Right. You can imagine what it looks like me. deep Democrat, you know, radical Christian and so forth. I said, good God, Russell, I appreciate you telling the truth. That doesn't mean you give up on it. It just means that you have to try to reform, broaden things on the outside and work with those on the inside. Uh, I had mentioned... Politician, for example, like Phil Angelides, running for governor in, uh, in California, who I'm spending a lot of time with against Arnold. Looks like it's David versus Goliath at the moment, but we don't know. Things will change. Obama himself may get more fire, get more courage, and end up surprising all of us and be a magnificent politician if he lives. You know, you never know, black man running for president. Uh, uh, I'm praying for the brother already. Just talk about it. He's going to need some protection. But uh, um, <laughs> But he's—I think he's a brilliant brother. I think he has magnificent potential. I'm not encouraged when I, when he you said, you know, I hear Joe Lieberman as his mentor." I said, "Oh my God, that's a little bit too, too a little bit too uh, Catholic, small C for me," in terms of who you who you tie your bandwagon to, because I'm very critical of my dear brother Joe Lieberman and supportive of Ned Lamont. But uh, you're dragging me into politics, you know. Like <laughs> And, of course, the kind of idea I'm talking about has as much to do with mind, heart, and soul, orientation, and so forth, as ideology and politics. Ideology and politics is always a part and parcel. But when you talk about what kind of human being you want to be, what kind of courage you have in the face of various forms of death, that cuts much deeper than just politics. Because I have a whole host of folk who agree with me politically, but I don't have a whole lot of respect for them on a human level. You see? Because they're cowards in other contexts of their lives. You see? I mean, I love them. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, I... And I, I have people who I have deep ideological and political disagreements with, but they're persons of principle. I just realized, I just argued that they either got the wrong principle or draw the wrong inferences from the principles that they have. You see, to I me, mean? I mean, like the course we're going to have with Brother, uh, brother uh, Robbie George. I just I can't wait to be able to teach with my brother because I have respect for him as a very sophisticated conservative thinker, and we're going to learn a lot together. We're going to wrestle with great texts. And then we'll go out to lunch, and I'll try to tell him why he's wrong. He'll try to tell me why I'm wrong. That's precisely what democratic paideia in this broader sense is, though we do take stands ideologically, politically, but we may have to clash. We just try to mediate it with respect and civility. And, of course, we both are very good at that. <laughs> very much so. Professor. Oh.
1: Thank you so much, Professor West. Um, In thinking about Director Smith's notion of yours as the first volume on what will all become our Morrison shelves, I invite you to
2: hold us as a faculty accountable to the question of courage that you laid out. And so just for history,
1: I would love, this is not so much a question as a is hoping that you will maybe riff on this a little bit. What, how can I, how can we be held accountable
0: ten years from now, twenty years from now, for having been courageous in the face of such privilege and resources and opportunity? What do we have to do to make this possible?
2: Mm, oh, I appreciate the question. You all know Professor Melissa Harris-Lace was what such a wonderful, wonderful uh, presence here at Princeton. I guess just kind of what's stolen from the University of Chicago, or you just left the University of Chicago. I guess, though, so, with your blessed little gift from heaven there too, Parker. Uh, I, I think there's so many different kinds of accountability. See, I don't believe in a, um, a short-term, immediate accountability downplay to long-term accountability. Uh, accountability functions on a number of different levels, uh, uh, and so I think on the one hand we try to make these lectures as honest, as candid, uh, as insightful and truthful as they can be. And uh, through work with the press and so forth, we've got the director of the press here too. Raise your hand no brother. Raise your hand. There you go. Give this brother a hand. He's been doing a wonderful job with the press. We've got the director of the press here, definitely. He just did some wonderful lectures with, uh, the, with, the, with my dear brother Ronald Dworkin, Is Democracy Possible? University of Princeton Press. is a magnificent book, very clear. And Dworkin, of course, is, he can write some rather obscure stuff when he wants to, but this text is clear. And there's a time to write obscure stuff, but at that particular moment, he wrote something very clear. He, this particular lecture is for a broader audience. So we say, look, University of Princeton, we will publish our text on... Text on Issue that may not be that widely accessible to an audience, but scholars are not concerned about it, and it's very important that scholars engage in their kind of research within their own specialized context. There's other texts that's going to be much broader. This text, we're looking for something broad. Was that right? Absolutely. So that would be the first thing. But that doesn't mean that those who come after me uh, have to do that at all. I do not believe in just one paradigm. I don't believe in one kind of person or one kind of way being the source of all imitation and emulation. We had to make spaces, division of labor, and so on. But on another level, too, I think we also have to acknowledge that the, uh, the levels of catastrophe and disaster and trauma that I alluded to in this country, not exclusively but disproportionately, poor people of color that does build beyond just the publishing of texts. So that we have various programs to make efforts to connect with those persons in those communities who could benefit from the center those persons who could bring insight to the center just as those of us at the center can bring insight to them very important very important and of course many will also be tied to elites politicians and and uh, corporate elites who, who, who wield a significant amount of power, who are open to the kind of visions and viewpoints that, that we have. And that's, that's a different kind of accountability, but it's part and parcel of this kind of uh, collection of forms of accountability that, that we all have, to keep, all have to keep track of. Uh, and this is going to be true in regard to as I mean, empire, class, gender, sexual orientation. That's not PC chit-chat. That's wrestling with people's struggles and sufferings and their attempt to be the best that they can, you see. I mean, part of the Ice Age is to trivialize the suffering of others and to be indifferent to the most vulnerable. You know, William James used to say, indifference is the one trait that makes the very angels weep. William James was right, and he did a lot of weeping, too, for the most vulnerable, the towering man of letters in American civilization. Other questions, though. Appreciate that. You got a hand right there. You say. You say what those out? Okay. just shout it out, though, bro. Oh, is there is there a microphone? though? maybe not. You hear the question over here? What happens if we don't regain the sense of democratic pride, especially for young black brothers and sisters in uh, urban context? Uh, uh, well, it's already frightening. I mean, the catastrophe has already reached a, uh, a crisis level in terms of, I mentioned just briefly, in terms of the, uh, the criminal justice system with the, with the high school dropout rates tied to the underground uh, um, economy, buying and selling of drugs and so forth. Um, the prison population, of course, not just losing the right to vote, but oftentimes getting locked up, uh, 62% of them for soft drug sentences, and I always remind my Princeton students that if the police enforced the drug laws at Princeton at the same level of intensity as they do in Trenton, the jails would be more colorful. And I'm not encouraging them to do that. It's just that we have to recognize that there is a differential treatment. you got young people just flying high in the friendly skies across race. We know that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not for that at all, but I'm just talking about facts. But the fact that a disproportionate black and brown and poor, and more and more white poor, are getting caught in that way, you see. And I think we end up with a more authoritarian America. And unfortunately, again, there's always a sense that that authoritarian reach touches the poor first. When it begins to hit the middle classes, all of a sudden we got a crisis. Just like I'm thoroughly convinced that you know, if we had a draft and Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Columbia students had their bodies coming back in coffins, it would be hard to hide them. It would be difficult to hide them. Because all of a sudden, their powerful parents would say, you know what? This is taking it too far. <laughs> You're going to put my baby's coffin on television. You're going to put that thing on television. We are in a war. We're in a war. We're all in it together. How come it's, how are you going to render it invisible? Which is to say, when it begins to touch the middle classes, all of a sudden then that differential treatment kicks in. And begin to say, oh, my God, this is real injustice. My God, there's really people dying. No, people have been dying the whole time. I go into black churches, I ask, how many of y'all have relatives in the Army? Ninety percent raise their hand. Ninety percent. Then you go to -to Well-to-Do neighborhood. I like to go to -to Well-to-Do neighborhood, got friends there. (laughs) How many of y'all got cousins in the Army? Well, John is a Marine, but he got interested in U.S. history and got tied into a concern about the Army, and next thing you know, he was gone. The only one there. I said, wow. What a difference. You could imagine what it's like if that draft hit equally across the board. And I'm not calling for a draft. I'm just saying it exposes the differential treatment. And we can say this across, across the board. I was just at St. George's Prep School just last week in Newport. Wonderful place. With John Brian Diamond, who was the uh, cousin of John Brown the founder of Brown University. And you all know what's going on at Brown right now with Sister Ruth, President Ruth Simmons, connection with slavery and so forth. You see, Diamond's a cousin. He's tied to slavery, too. You go up there, you got 327 students. You got 200 acres. They got classrooms of seven in every class. And you tell those young folk, you're brilliant every day, whether they are or not. <laughs> you just keep telling them. You're brilliant. You're brilliant. Next thing you know, they, they really start believing. It. They start internalizing. God, I am brilliant. I'll be telling I thought I was mediocre, but I really am brilliant. The Grades go up. Self-confidence goes up. Next thing you know, they're on the way to Princeton. That's fine. We want, we want brilliant, hard-working folk tied into Pidea. But can you imagine what it would be like if that kind of treatment were true in the urban context? Jamal, you are brilliant, brother you think so brother? the way yes. yes I do I'm not lying to you you really are what make you say that I just believe in your potential that's what to tell the white brothers and sisters it's just a matter of believing getting in to have confidence get moving be disciplined be determined don't give up don't cave in we know it's not a mystery in terms of how you treat young folk It's just that it's a low priority when it comes to poor children. Now, this is not preaching. It's just a matter of objective fact. The evidence is such that there's a low priority. There's no wheel among significant influential sectors of the populace to highlight and put a premium on education for poor children. And chickens do come home to roost, as I said yesterday. You reap what you sow. Sooner or later, the whirlwind returns, and there'll never be enough police and prisons to deal with that whirlwind as it continues already to return over and over and over again. And thank God that we do have not just a uh, um, you know magnificent ac- academic scholars, but uh, uh, sophisticated thinkers and analysts, the Douglas Massey's and others, the Catherine Newmans and others. Who are hitting this issue head on, and it's a challenge that uh, affects each and every one of us. I'm sorry to go on so long, though. But uh, I saw another hand somewhere. We've got good time. Yes, everybody's right here.
1: Thank you again for your knowledge. I have a quick question for you. Do you think the uh, quest of the immigration community currently, particularly the Latino portion of the immigration community, is in a way accepting the gifts of black folks and their quest for participation in the American democratic experiment?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. appreciate that question. I alluded yesterday about my being in New York at nine eleven with uh, Brother Freddy Ferraro, who was gonna be the first Latino mayor Uh, just as I worked very closely with Villaraigosa in Los Angeles, first when he lost, and then, of course, when he bounced back in Los Angeles. But as you know, the question is not so much just one's ethnic or racial identity, but it's what is the moral content of that identity and what are the political consequences of that identity. The reason why I work closely with both of those Brown brothers is because they have a vision. They have a democratic vision. They understand Just talk about democratic paideia. So when they stand up, Martin King means somebody, not just as some icon on a pedestal, but it's part and parcel of a tradition they're a part of. Harold Washington means something to them as a great mayor. You see what I mean? In the way in which, you know, Johnny Ford doesn't, who's a black, relatively conservative mayor down in Alabama. So it's not a matter of skin pigmentation or, 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 or just one phenotype, right? It's their larger democratic vision. I think that Latino communities, and we have to disaggregate the category, as you know, because you got... Puerto Ricans, you got Salvadorians, you got Dominicans, you got Chicanos, and so forth and so on. All that rich heterogeneity, and diversity, that, that category subsumes all these different populations. It's split. It's deeply split. And so you're going to end up just like in other communities, with some folk resonating with with much of what I'm talking about with Du Bois and so forth and so on, and others who will say, uh, no, that's 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 not me. I'm uh, I'm 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 tying it to some other gifts, not these kind of gifts. Of black folk that that uh, Wes is talking about, politically speaking. I mean, they still gonna listen to rhythm and blues and jazz because they wanna be able to boogie down in their own way. When the right wing folk can still get their groove on, you we know that. Uh, uh, so it's a complicated thing in terms of what they what they appropriate. Uh, uh, but uh, I have hope for building bridges between. Uh, so-called brown and black folk. I have great hope in that I grew up in California, and so the black community was right in one corner, the brown was in the next. All of us dealing with apartheid-like conditions and so forth, learn how to communicate e- with each other beyond language. And uh, uh, it was a magnificent uh, childhood with black and brown in the, in the corner of Sacramento, California. So I do have some some hope in that regard, but I'm not naive. I know that there always be uh, 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 deep splits in, 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 in the community in this regard. One last question. Absolutely. Tony, you didn't want to ask the question, did you? Oh, yeah, okay. Because <laughs> I hate to have Tony just sit here and not he say one word, you know what I mean? But, but go, we go ahead, to go. <laughs> Your last question, though, brother. Yet a decline of the art of dialogue and the art of communication and so on. Yeah. There's a wonderful book on this to read, though, brother. John Dewey's great text, The Public and His Problems of 1927. Actually, I think Professor Glaude teaches that text. He teaches a lot of Dewey and James. But it's a classic in terms of how a society tied to democratic paideia as he defined it in the twenties, tries to sustain the art of dialogue active listening, tolerance, a self-confidence that allows one to actually respond rather than to simply undercut, to be self-critical, to be flexible and fluid and so forth. I mean, if I had another lecture, I'd probably be able to say much more about uh, jazz itself as the highest form of democratic symbolic action ever produced in America. Where the dialogue has to do with each person having the courage to find their voices and then lift their voices over against other voices in order to elevate the collective performance of the group, the quartet, the orchestra like Duke Ellington Account and so forth. So what you actually have is this magnificent dialogue which is in one sense spontaneous and improvisational but it's spontaneous and improvisational precisely because they are so disciplined and they know the constraints so well owing to their discipline. I'm going to see it tomorrow when Alice Coltrane is in Newark. First concert she will be giving this is the wife of John Coltrane. Forty-some years ago they were playing together. Her son, Robbie Coltrane, will be playing with her. And all you do is just sit there and watch a conversation, a dialogue, improvisation, antiphonal call and response, repetition, the rhythm and the melody and the harmony, all manifest in works that are not written down. It just depends in part on how you're feeling that day. And how somebody else is feeling that day. But it's not in any way exotic. It's not in any way primitivistic. And it's not in any way tied to some kind of uh, uh, natal privilege. John Coltrane was not born privileged playing an instrument created by Adolf Sax in Belgium in 1848 called a saxophone. He had to learn how to play that. And did he learn how to play it? Dialogue. What goes into that? Same kind of stuff. Courage, openness, flexibility, fluidity, tolerance, willing to be vulnerable, willing to, I started this whole lecture series off, take a risk. You have to be willing to take a risk. Oscar Wilde used to say sentimentality is in fact, the sense that one can have the luxury of an emotion without paying for it. That's deep stuff. I'm telling (laughs) you. I started with Oscar Wilde, I end with brother Oscar Wilde. Thank you all so very much.